the impact of these technologies will be so big that it's really hard to comprehend with what we know today, how it would change the world that we live in. And it's up to us. Even though it might replace some of your work, it might replace it in a good way. Maybe having an open-minded way to what else can I do with the available time now that I have might be one of the approach. People become less scared when they're able to understand it better as well. I think our minds fill in the gaps sometimes. Welcome to The Future Of, a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries, markets, and technology verticals. Together, we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Linus Ekenstam, co-founder at Sensive and Bedtime Stories. We're also joined by Johnny Rodriguez and Elisha Tirada. Both are directors at Fresh Consulting leading our labs division. They're also co-founders of Brancher.ai. We're here to explore the future of generative AI. It's a pleasure to have you guys with us on this episode focused on such an important and trending topic right now. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Let's start with some introductions. Linus, if we can start with you, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about your background and experience? Yeah, perfect. So my name is Linus Ekenstam, and I am a designer by trade. So I got about 15, almost 18 years under my belt, uh, product design. And for the past half year or so, six months, I've been putting my feet or my knees and my ankle, like everything, my entire body into generative AI and large language models. I'm breathing, sleeping, dreaming uh, AI at the moment. I uh, managed to, to uh, share my learnings uh, online with, with an audience on Twitter and in a newsletter. So it's been really fun to grow alongside uh, others trying to get their feet wet. So I guess I call myself an educator, edutainer. <laughs> Love it. We've been learning from you too. And I think we noticed that you have what, like 82,000 followers on Twitter and your, your newsletter now has as many as 12,000 subscribers. So I think a lot of people are, are listening and uh, we're grateful to have you with us uh, today. That's so humbling. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Johnny, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Yeah, happy to. My name is Johnny Rodriguez, uh, Director of Strategic Innovation here at Fresh coming up on 10 years at Fresh Consulting. And I would say uh, in my career, I've had a lot of focus on emerging technology throughout the years. have spent a lot of time with augmented and virtual reality, a lot in this AI ML space, lots of uh, interesting trends that have happened, I think, since I've gotten into my professional career. I am uh, also a designer and a developer by trade. So I've done a lot there in the UI UX space, uh, as well as uh, overseeing the development of quite a lot of projects and products uh, during my time here at Fresh as well. And uh, yeah, I think my connection to generative AI, I would say started, I would say probably started before I helped co-found and create Brancher.ai with Elisha. But I think that was where we really kind of dove deep and really tried to apply this kind of goal that we've had for a really long time of democratizing emerging technology. And so we created this product and, and uh, it's kind of allowed us to, you know, we've had to kind of keep our, you know, our finger to the pulse on everything happening in the generative AI space, which is fascinating and fast growing and fast changing. So that's a little bit about me. Thanks, Johnny. You've launched over 20 uh, products, apps, and websites uh, at Fresh. So your, your experience is deep and having someone on the front lines at a technology innovation company that's keeping us fresh 
has been awesome. But your depth in uh, generative AI and also in you know kind of the XR space is seems unparalleled. Um, so thanks for being here with us, Elisha. Over to you, bud. Hey, my name is Elisha Trada, Director Innovation, Technical Innovation Director at Fresh Consulting. At this point, I've been with Fresh probably for about twelve years now, a little bit longer than Johnny. And just like Johnny, I've always been interested in exploring the fresh new technology, as we call ourselves, fresh consulting, and always try to find the use of you know something new and exciting,、uh, like generative AI, and part of our consultation to our client services. And I think Brancher AI that I created with Johnny over a hackathon was a very special moment for us because we wanted something. That we can create ourselves to ahead of client asking us.、Uh, that was back in November, and now we're getting a surge of requests coming in from client asking for something in the generative AI space. So we always like to be a little bit ahead of curve. Sometimes it's too early that we don't get much attention until a little bit later. But we always enjoy that journey of how do we stay fresh? How do we、uh, embrace the emerging technologies in a positive direction? Alicia, you mentioned Brancher.ai.、Uh, can you tell the listeners just a little bit about that, since that's a, a product that you and Johnny co-founded? Yeah, essentially, I saw Johnny、uh, building this、uh, application stitched together with the Typeform and Zapier and the, I think it was Airtable or Google Spreadsheet, where using the GPT you can create、uh, social media posts for、uh, our marketing team、uh, here at Fresh. I saw that and. Hey Johnny, I think we can create application that does all of it,、uh, where users don't even have to stitch those solutions together. And over a hackathon, which happened to happen, and we just decided to take on a chance, we built a Brancher AI where no coder who doesn't know how to code,、uh, just with a little bit of knowledge of prompting, can go and build、uh, application based on AI and. The biggest difference that we have is that you can chain AI models together instead of just one thing. And Johnny, do you have anything you want to add to that?、Uh, maybe what I'll add is to Brancher.ai is I think that we intended to help people like us in a similar like you know it's like hey let's help this be a product to help solve some of the challenges and nuances that we deal with. But we've ended up finding out now with forty thousand users、um, in just a couple of months that there are so many use cases that are being. Leverage that we just didn't even fathom, didn't even think about, and a lot of people finding value with just generative AI and to accomplish a lot of the work that they take on or the things that they do in their personal life. Thanks for the background, everyone. It's great to have you with us and your your depth of depth of experience in generative AI. You know, this we've heard from a lot of people. This is the year of of AI, specifically the year of generative AI. And we still feel like this is really the early days. You know, the acceleration is just picking up so much.、Uh, it seems much faster than the dot com era. If we kind of go back in time, just as fast or faster than the voice AI kind of acceleration that we saw when when now we have billions of users. It was a matter of years once phones picked up that technology. But it's also one of the fastest growing areas for capital investment, growing at a break kind of breakneck pace. And we've seen big companies like Microsoft, Google. Amazon and others, a lot of the big tech players trying to get on this bandwagon,、uh, given what's happening in the space. What's different, or different, it seems like this time around, is is the the output from generative AI seems to be a lot more human. And so I think for a long time, you know, we've been 
knowing AI is going to be big, but but didn't realize how like how close it was going to be to us. And so there's definitely seems to be a, a shift now in this space. So let's start with just the 101, kind of the current state, and then let's move into the future. But Elisha, for those that may be newer to this topic, can you help them understand what generative AI is and how it's you know differs from other types of AI? Generative AI is, is a little bit different, although it existed for some time, and now it's getting more attention because it generates new content. It could generate a text image, now getting into like a video and audio. So instead of just predicting what it is or classifying what the data is, it can generate new data. And because it is getting so good at generating data that we human can even tell the difference between human output versus like computer output, now it's getting a lot of the hype today. It seems like we've hit a pace of change where this is not only billions of people are now following this, but it's it just seems to be growing so fast. Linus, what are your thoughts on that? Like, why is it now? Why why now? Why is why is generative AI such a big thing right now? You mentioned yourself, you're trying to keep up with it. You're living and breathing it, but why now? Yeah, <laughs> it's difficult even for someone. Yeah, even for someone like me, it's difficult. If if we think a little bit about like, it's not it's not an overnight success. Like the research for this stuff has been in the making for the past decade. There's been a lot of strategically positioned dominoes, if you were to like put it that way. I think one reason for the current success and, and the current kind of like hype cycle or beginning of, of this kind of taking over the world has a bit to do with UX. So if we look at the GPT-3 has been around for quite some time, but it never really took off. It's been in the playground for OpenAI for almost two years. But then when, when they released the chat interface, chat GPT, and also like a somewhat updated model that could keep train of thought in, in a conversation, uh, things started to get spooky and, and it really took off. And if you look at the image generation and the different models or the different solutions that are, are out there for image generation, it's accessible. It's not bound to, let's say, a computer hardware. Like you can have any, you can have your smartphone and you can go into Midjourney on Discord and you can start creating art. So the barrier to entry on a lot of these things are almost non-existent. Whereas like other tech breakthroughs, like just look at XR, like VR, for example, it's a massive, massive hurdle to get to adoption because like you need to buy new hardware. Here is just like a website and these tools are running on any type of low level device with access to the internet. So it's like democratized and distribution is already there. We have 5 billion people using the internet. So it's nothing like the dot-com era, right? 1999 looks like nothing compared to this because back then almost no one used the internet and now everyone is on the internet. So I think that's the contributing factors to why this is taking off so fast. Uh, and also it solves real problems. Like I've never seen a tech uh, getting you know introduced into the marketplace and adopted so fast and, and creating so much value and, and changing so many workflows, um, almost seemingly overnight. So I think that combination is kind of like uh, all of that coming together is, is what, what's creating this like almost flood of, of AI, generative AI in, in all facets of, of the workforce, essentially. Are we getting drowned by that flood? Are we riding, <laughs> riding, are we surfing the wave, essentially? I think that's <laughs> what we're all trying to figure out, right? Yeah. If you're in the thick of it, yes, it might feel like you're getting flooded. But if you're, if you're looking at it from like a, so a regular users, a regular internet users perspective, uh, they don't they don't get flooded because they only see like 
the biggest stuff that's happening. They're seeing the Bings, they're seeing the the work, you know, the Google Workspace, they're seeing ChatGPT. But like, if you're in this space and, and you kind of see what's going on under the hood, yeah, there's a lot. And when this stuff hits the marketplace and the winners are going to get like kind of siphoned out from from whoever's not going to be around, it's going to get even crazier because then everyday people will have access to these tools too. So I think we've seen nothing yet. Like we're at 1% perhaps. Thank you for that perspective. It definitely is a race. Uh, that's for sure. And we see this with the tech companies and even people are predicting massive changes to, to search and Google Google saying, hey, I got, okay, we got to catch up. We got to launch something now, even though it's not ready. Johnny, you, you track you know technology pretty well. From your perspective, who are the big players in generative AI right now and kind of what's going on in the marketplace? Wow, that's a big question. Yeah, there are definitely some big players in the space today. And then there's new players entering the entering the the space, I would say almost daily, definitely weekly. I mean, I think by the time we actually launch this podcast, there will be a portion of what we say today that will already have changed. Um, it's moving so quickly. You know, we're even doing a, a an emerging tech meetup here in Austin, Texas, and a lot of what we shared in our last meeting will have to be updated and say, and we have to say, oh, by the way, uh, and I think to answer your question, Jeff, you know, OpenAI uh, is one of the bigger, most well-known companies in the space. It's like, hey, they've now launched X, Y, and Z, and they've launched this iteration of this. And other big tech companies like Microsoft and Google are implementing either their own versions or they've accepted the technology and have started to build with it themselves. But I think you're seeing, you know, definitely every major technology company, you're going to see elements of generative AI. I mean, not just in in, you know, like, hey, here's a fun, you know, way to go generate an image. I think that a lot of times we think that that's what it might be, but it's going to be fully integrated to the systems that you use. So yeah, OpenAI has quite a few different platforms under their umbrella that are in the generative AI space. So I think the one that triggered my attention at the very beginning was Dolly, which was a type in some text, generate an image. And I was floored. Like I was, I was literally like obsessed for 18 hours straight and I generated thousands of images my first night with access to Dolly. And then I had had access to GPT-3, but it wasn't until, like Linus mentioned, the application of chat that then it triggered for me this, oh, wow, I can have conversations with this to be able to get to the output that I want. I don't have to think about a blank page and what do I ask it. I can kind of go through iterations to get to that. So there's there's a lot that OpenAI, OpenAI has been able to enable. But uh, but yeah, we're going to see, you know, today I would say, you know, like from the big companies, Microsoft, Google, Adobe has recently shared some things. I think we're going to see it all over. And I think that in a, in a lot of cases, you will hear companies not leading with it. It'll just become part of the interface and part of the natural experience that a user has. And it might be more frictionless where you don't have to think about it in the same way that today, you know, you take photos with Google and there's a lot of AI that's leveraged, not generative AI, but lots of AI that's leveraged to improve the image output. And you don't think AI when you do that, or when you see you're on your TikTok, you know, for you page, you're not thinking, okay, these are images that are going through algorithms and data to kind of give me that. So I think it's going to be, you're going to see lots and lots of companies start to put it more in the background. Right now, it's very much leading with that. You're seeing a lot of features of saying, you know, I think the most common icon right now is a magic wand, which represents (laughs) 
using <laughs> using AI to generate something new. Um, and you're seeing that on almost every application. Notion, Adobe's does, you know, is doing it. We're seeing it being, we're gonna see it. We see Google using it. So quite a lot of companies that are leveraging that, but it's going to be everywhere, all over the kind of digital footprint, these major applications. And AI also managed to get like the color purple for some reason. Yeah. I want to dig into that a little further. I might have to research why, but Linus and Elisha, other thoughts on the marketplace, like what's going on in the marketplace and, and kind of the big players in the space. I think what's interesting now with, we kind of like OpenAI kind of leading, leading the pathway and the Microsoft obviously in, in, in bed with them has gotten everyone to scramble to try to catch up. And I think we're kind of busy looking at what's happening without looking further out. It's safe to say that maybe two years from now, three years from now, most of our devices will have edge you know, things running in the edge. So we'll basically have stuff running on our device. So all of these services that are like, you know, currently out there and creating bus, uh, I'm not so sure that it's interesting in the long run what's happening in the marketplace right now. I think that's my take. I, I, I'm excited about what's going on and I'm excited about like companies doing good and, and, and you know, trying to help out getting out this out for more people because obviously that's what's needed. But I think it's interesting to see what's going to happen relative short term in terms of like edge computes. That's where my head's at on this question. Yeah. From software engineering perspective, because I create applications like branch AI, I think the marketplace, we can also look at it from the engineer side of things. For example, uh, Midjourney, everyone you know, loves Midjourney. I love Midjourney. I used it to generate image. It is very close system. You cannot tap into the power up in journey as software engineer. So some users on branch AI would ask us, Hey, when, when are you supporting mid journey? And we have to say, well, they don't support, uh, external developers. So we can't support mid journey as official thing. And that is very interesting where AI provides Dali with the API. So of course we would integrate with that. So there is like open integratable market that as engineers, we can tap into it to build more things uh, interesting, accessible. Uh, there are also more proprietary things that they may never release. There is also open source alternatives that people try to come up with to try to compete, not maybe not compete, to make technologies more available, as in the algorithm or the technology. Now, you may not be able to run it because it still costs you so much money to rent GPUs to run it yourself. But there's there's a side of marketplace that is very interesting monitor. Like how how is it enabling other creators or engineers to build their solutions? Because that also changes the landscape of what to expect in the future. It definitely seems like the creators and the tech companies are kind of grabbing hold of this new power and they're kind of each harnessing it in their own capability. And that's like the the building block of like all these other use cases that are to come because it still seems to be a, the wild west. It's raw and powerful in its use case, but it still seems to be the wild west for like a lot of business applications or workflows. Everyone's on their own kind of doing their own thing. And so I think there's the universal benefit to that. It also seems like you know, the search engines over the last 10 years have gotten more and more ad centric and maybe the content a little bit more SEO manipulated. And it seems like the quality of, of real human answers that are at least perceived to be human, more friendly are coming out of generative AI for, for questions that you would otherwise ask a search engine. But the results you're getting are 
are kind of a, you know, maybe a, the ads and uh, some of the SEO kind of targeted results. So I'm, I'm wondering if that's also playing into people's that, you know, the, the pent up demand for like what maybe these search engines should have been giving us, you know, like in the past, if, if they're evolving in a, in a human friendly way. Johnny, from your perspective, like, you know, you know, Stanford has said that like, read on their website that the generative AI has this capacity to change how we think, create, teach, and also learn, and maybe even change our perspective on what's important to learn. But tell us more about like use cases. Like what are people doing today uh, with generative AI that's making it such a, such a big hit? P- having people, you know, I talked to one of my colleagues, his wife just stumbled on generative AI and like you, she, she was up all night, like playing with it. Right. But like, tell us more about like, the use cases with generative AI. Specifically, you guys have an application, Brancher AI, where you get to see a lot of these use cases. But um, tell us more about kind of the categories of use cases, maybe some common categories of use cases to help people understand this better. There are definitely a lot of different use cases out there that we're seeing across a, a wide variety of industries. And I think it's basically, I think generative AI is helping in a lot of industries. They're helping them go from like zero to one faster and making making tasks easier or being able to get started with something when you partner with the technology when you partner to have it have it be something that gives you helps you get to something a little faster your your compute your your mind and your processing and your the cognition can be focused on things that uh, might be more creative or can help add upon things or it, it just kind of helps you it's almost like you're doing the work of one and a half people or two people in a way. So you see that in education. I mean, I, I can go across each of these automotive. There's a lot happening in that space. I, I know there's data around CarMax and how they've leveraged uh, OpenAI's technology to summarize thousands of customer views and help shoppers decide what used cars to buy. And they're able to do that pretty quickly. Or entertainment, right? I've seen this use of Pixar designers and people that create films and story writing and scripts, right? They're using it to generate new characters or variations of stories or game levels in the entertainment industry. You know, retail, you mentioned SEO early, the idea of personalization of product recommendation or product description or marketing copy to promote, you know, different things there. Um, And we we could go on and on on finance and healthcare and, and so on. But yeah, I mean, I think there's it definitely taps into a lot of different markets and industries today. I think not all of these industries are at the forefront of these emerging technologies, though. And so there's there's still a big gap of you know mass user adoption across all of these different industries, but we're starting to see them. I think we're definitely at the precipice of all of that. Got it. Linus, what are your thoughts on kind of some of the common use cases uh, that we're seeing today? Yeah, common use cases. I think Depending on like where, where, if we look at text-based or, or, or image-based, I mean, this is or video-based, this is everything, right? But I think Johnny touched a lot on 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 areas where where it's making rounds, right? But I think one of the most like aha moments, I think for me with, with LLMs, for example, was when it actually completed a task that I had in front of me that I needed help with within my workflow that was unique to me, and I think this is one of the power uses where like software today is built for masses. Like we see software being built for where there's a TAM that's big enough, some company or individuals go out and build software for that. With large language models and generative AI, I think even the minutest problem that maybe just one or two people might have is something that you can solve with these tools. So 
in the broad in broad strokes, yes, we're seeing a lot of real, really cool use cases that are, you know, the this big company is doing X or that big company is doing Y, and you know, we can do a lot of really grunt work that was before really hard to do. Uh, we can now do with kind of indexing and. It's interesting, but I think where we look at where the real impact will be is kind of like, you know, there's a hundred people in the world with this unique issue and these people can, you know, use these tools to get these issues solved uh, because no one will ever build software for them. Like, to be frank, no one will ever go out and do that. But then if you look at those 100 people, there are going to be tens of thousands of those instances where there is a small group of people that have a unique issue. So that's where I think we are seeing leverage. And I think that's where we're going to see more leverage. And I think also what you built with Brancher, for example, is a good example of that. Like, you know, you're empowering people to build their own little micro tool or, you know, their own solution to a problem. So, um, yeah, that, I think that's what I, I got to add to that. And this is where I wrote something the other day where disposable apps is going to be a thing of the, of the future, right? Where, where, where an app is built by AI purposefully for your single task that you have at hand that you need solving. And then the task will, the, the app will run in some runtime. And then once you're done with your task, the app will delete itself and go away. It won't be in runtime anymore. And I think this might sound science fiction right now, but I think very soon this will be just normal. It's just like the AI makes you something on the fly. It uses that to solve a problem and then it goes away. Easy peasy. One point in my career, I was, I was writing a book on the different types of smart. It was like, you can be creative smart, you can be math smart, you can be street smart. There's lots of different types of smart. But one of the core definitions that I remember from that, uh, the outline and the research I was doing, like what makes someone smart? Because just being test smart didn't make you successful in business as an example. But you know, being business smart also didn't mean you could go solve uh, problems for, for NASA. You know, like, and so there's all these different types of smart I was thinking about. And, and one of the things I remember coming across the definition and it said it was the information you surround yourselves with as you do a task that makes you smart. And I think as we think about generative AI, going to this throwaway applications, you know, it's like if we can constantly give a thinking partner kind of our unstructured ideas or notes or drawings or images, and it can help us think it can produce something, you know, beautiful or, or, or produce, you know, the next iteration of something or help synthesize a whole bunch of research around that task, then there's something really uh, powerful about that intelligent system, you know, that we're pairing with. And I think if I can summarize kind of what you guys have said, it's almost like, hey, what use cases? There's like an unlimited number of use cases, right? It's like, it's really kind of almost anywhere. It's more like, hey, there's an, there's an intelligent partner that can augment almost any task and work that we do. Elisha, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think how general of a problem that these generative AIs can solve, I think is also great. Like I think since 2017, when big companies start to release like a cloud-based, like, you know, AI model training and all these stuff that, you know, I would collect the uh, images of cats to try to predict the, the breed of a cat. I also take pictures of sticky notes to try to identify uh, with the object detection. It's going to be a world where you don't like train things on your own unless it really has to be super niche thing. Yeah, the generative apps are generic enough that you can start using it today to generate images, write text. And that's why it's so applicable to many problem solving today. I think and one thing to add here is like, with all these conversations, also going forward in this conversation, 
AI is the worst it will ever be today, right? It will never get worse than it is currently. So that's just like food for thoughts when you kind of like embrace this and kind of talk through this and we're already mind blown. So, so just sit that, sit with that, right? Like it's just, it's, it's never going to be as bad as it is today. <laughs> <laughs> I think for a long time, we talked about devices that are smart. And I think what we meant was that they're connected to the internet and they could send data or receive data, but they weren't truly smart. Anything now can be connected to the internet, you know, like a, a tree, a plant can have a little receiver, anything, but is it smart? You know, and I think we're now at this place where it's like, we kind of understand better what smart is and, it, and what it is, I think is it's closer to us. It's closer to human beings. It's actually intelligent where it can synthesize or give some, give some good output that we would, we would quickly understand and be like, wow, I got something valuable. They did something for me that I didn't have to do a lot of thinking around. It gave me something like, you know, that, that I could use right away. I think that there's a, there's kind of a sea change there where it's like, it's not necessarily another mind to make decisions for you, but it's like in this intelligent system where you can use your mind even better. Yeah, I think what, one way to look at this is like, we've been in the information age for quite some time, like where the internet is basically a large library and, and we're kind of like surfing the library, we're, we're querying the library, we're, we're like skilled librarians. And we're also skilled curators because like we need to filter out all the crap and the ads and the spam and the viruses. And along comes uh, generative AI or, or large language models, which is like some type of intelligence. We don't know really what type of intelligence it is, but we're moving away from like a information highway to an intelligence highway where we're just like, we, we have access to this synthesized entity that is able to, in natural language, uh, speak back to us. And I think that's the major shift here that we're going away from the library of the internet to kind of like the, the new beginning of entities where, where information is the core, but intelligence, it's what's getting delivered. And I think this is, this is the, the mind blowing stuff. That's just like, this is straight out of sci-fi and we're living through it. This is what's just so powerful with this shift. <laughs> <laughs> in the last six months, we're now in the sci-fi world. It's like, you know, like, no, I, I feel it. I feel it. I think we all feel it. And there's a information hierarchy or a data hierarchy. It goes there's data, information, knowledge, wisdom, the DIKW framework. And I think that like, what I think what we've entered into is more of the, the intelligent systems that we're feeding information to are now giving us more like the knowledge and wisdom side that we we haven't we've been experiencing the data and information, but we're getting into kind of the better use of information that, that kind of precedes maybe better knowledge and better wisdom. What about limitations, Johnny and, or Elisha? Do you have any thoughts on sort of the limitations of generative AI? I mean, we're seeing the use cases proliferate. Everyone's talking about it from my young kids at school who are either getting penalized or rewarded for using it to the workplace where people are thinking about using it. What about the limitations? Yeah, I'll speak from the resource limitation perspective and not maybe usage limitation that maybe Johnny can talk about. Resource-wise, it's still very, very expensive. Like you still have to uh, lease uh, those GPUs. For example, Google, from Google, you can lease those GPUs. I think if you were to buy it, it might be like $20,000 plus. So you'd still be paying like, Last time I checked, if we were to run our own models, I think it was like a couple hundred dollars per month minimum to have it up and running. And that's only one GPU that can take one request at a time. So if we have 100 users requesting to 
run our own like a model, then you need to think about how do we load balance or queue things up. And if we don't want to do that, we need to keep leasing more and more of these. And with a lot of funding that OpenAI received, they can easily do that and try to offset the cost uh, where you know Microsoft can you know fund them, for example, and Microsoft can generate income by selling their ads in a new way that hasn't been done before to try to compete with the Google. But at individual level like me, I'm running those uh, new cool diffusion models on my PC with the NVIDIA graphics card. So that's cool. But if I were to turn it into a service where everyone can use it, it's still difficult. So you see a lot of uh, forums where engineers or creators would share like, hey, I created this cool model. What you do is you're downloading the model to your computer and you know use it for your personal fun, but it's still not to the level where everyone can deploy these things up. So there's a lot of creative stuff out there and a lot of companies try to support that effort, but a lot of cool stuff is still like hidden under the, the gate of the cost and availability of resources. Thank you for that kind of technical perspective. And I think that helps us understand why it costs money to actually ask for some, you know, get some, get some answers, get some output and from whether that's image or, or text or, you know, one thing to another, I think that helps us better understand the the perspective on cost, uh, which is unique. You know, it doesn't cost to like do a, a search engine query, but for a lot of these uh, uh, generative AI models, you're paying something, right? You have to have an account, you got to pay something. Yeah, I wanted to add that the, with the Bing, like you're limited to how many queries you can run uh, because of all these costs that they're trying to control that or that you have to pay for like a ChatGPT Pro if you want to keep like, you know, querying despite like heavy load uh, so that you can still get the results while the free users are blocked from using the ChatGPT. Johnny, what are your thoughts on sort of just some of the limitations on use in the, in the everyday? So I would say generative AI today, there's so many things that that it does super well. And I think those are the big aha moments we've we've been having the last few weeks or months, a lot having to do with what OpenAI is, is releasing and then seeing it kind of get included in a lot of the products we use from a day-to-day basis. But there are technical limitations that we're still experiencing. Now, a lot of these might change by the time this podcast gets released. Some have already changed in the last two weeks. Um, if you think about from an image standpoint, and, and Linus, you could probably confirm a lot of this, but thinking of like mid-journey V4 and the thought of like, oh, I can't really process hands very well. You know, I generate something really cool and it's got six fingers or 12 fingers or like a mesh of fingers. And unless you look really closely, you don't see that. But there was little details as somebody that would go and generate something where you would say, wow, this is incredible, but it's not quite there yet, right? That's changed a lot in V5, version five of mid-journey, where they're able to fix the fingers, right? And you're seeing better teeth are actually look normal, fingers look normal. And there's more and more things that you can kind of track almost on a day-to-day basis, definitely on a week-to-week basis on how image generation is improving. And we're going to see Dolly 3 come out. They have a currently have an experimentation version. We're going to see that get better. But there's limitations on what it can do, definitely. You know, I think I would put it in from an LLM standpoint, right? Maybe going away from images a little bit, something like ChatGPT or GPT-4. Sometimes a lot of the outputs can be, sometimes it's called hallucinating facts. So basically it's a reasoning error, right? It's it's essentially generating a response that is 
actually factually incorrect or it makes an inference that just not is not supported by what you typed in right so there's definitely and we've seen that sometimes happen where it's like 99% of the time I'm getting facts but then sometimes it generates a stat that at the time when it wasn't referencing things right uh being is able to show sources and say hey this is where I got the data or if you're on GPT-4 chat GPT plugins, which is something newer, there's even a little bit of, of data around that of where it goes and what it clicks and things like that. So definitely on, on the reliable reliability of outputs, I would say even a few weeks ago, I would have said limited knowledge on recent events. So if you go run something and you say, who won the game last night, this NBA game, it won't, it won't know that. Um, it didn't know that. With Bing connecting chat GPT or GPT-4 to Bing, it now has access to the internet, right? And then GPT, uh, ChatGPT has plugins, which is something they recently allowed, announced. If you haven't seen that, that's another one of those big moments where I was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. But the idea that it can actually connect to the internet now, so it actually has browsing capabilities. So then now it actually can connect and answer that. So again, these types of things that I'm listing could be addressed with technology or through user experience. We're also seeing a lot of bias in, in the outputs today. So that would be, you know, if the if the training data, which is a lot of just things around the internet, right, depending on where the data was trained, um, it's a reflection of what we type and what we what we upload to the internet. But a lot of it can be bias, and that could be from a that could be from a gender or racial bias, and it's sometimes reflected in the outputs. Maybe the last thing I'll mention, just not to go too long on this, is I think another limitation has to do with the application of generative AI for people's use cases. So I, I know there's a quote, I wrote it down so I could reference it later, that comes from Bill Gates that I really like. And he says, the first rule of technology used in a business is that automation applied to an efficient operation will magnify the efficiency. The second is that the automation applied to an inefficient operation will magnify the inefficiency. And so, you know, the code's kind of highlighting, you know, the importance of understanding how effectively to use the technology in order to reap its benefits. And if you apply GPT-4 to an efficient operation or ChatGPT or MidJourney, it can really magnify the efficiency and can bring immense benefits. But uh, on the flip side of that is that if, if you're doing it for something that's inefficient or if you don't really know how to use it, it could just create more noise and more confusion and it could really lead to, to negative consequences. And so I think we're still discovering ways to improve that today, where to apply it. So like the education gap is, I think, is still there. And I think there's a lot, to, a lot of work to be done there in the space. I'd like to talk a little bit more about ethics as we think about limitations, but let's first talk about the future and where things are going. And let's and let's step back to kind of some of the ethics because that's on all a lot of our minds as well as we think about how fast this is moving, given that technology typically has a little bit of a life of its own. And this this is actually a great example of technology having a life of its own, especially when there's an arms race to seeing who can be the leader in the space. But uh, Johnny, you mentioned Bill Gates. You know, another thing he said was. Uh, most people overestimate what technology can do or what it can achieve in a year, hence like Gartner's hype cycle, but they also underestimate what can be achieved in 10 years. We're already impressed. And Linus, you mentioned we're at like 1%. You know, this is a small like baby. So what do we think the future will look like? Like what, you know, what will things be like 10 years from now? Like what, what could change? Linus, what are your thoughts? And specifically around the technology or, you know, things that this technology could change. If we just also, again, step back a little bit historically, if we look 15 years back, basically the iPhone came out, right? And if you then look at like, what other technologies weren't around that you're using day to day today, 15 years ago, 
And uh, if, you, if you just ransack yourself and look at that, you go like, maybe there's one or two things that you're using daily that was around 15 years ago, if even that. The internet is one, and a phone is another one, but it wasn't smart. The rest of the things that you're using daily, like the Chrome browser, the, the camera, the, whatever you're up to, your, your identification on your phone, banking, all this stuff didn't exist. And we take it for granted. So we're technologists, we, we know how this stuff works. Uh, change itself is exponential, which is something that most people have no idea what that means. Even as someone that's in this field, it's really hard to comprehend that we've been through like 30 cycles of Moore's law since the invention of the microchip or close to. And we're now kind of entering the second half of the chessboard. So every doubling now, every kind of increase that we're seeing is kind of like a doubling of everything up until this point, which is insane. So when we're looking at AI and, and it could go, it could completely stale. We don't know, like it could go like for another year and then it just stops, innovation stops. I doubt it, to be honest. So looking 10 years into the future at this point, it's almost impossible. Like the, I think the change that we're gonna see are gonna be so in very in magnitude quite large that if I had, you know, the looking glass and go 10 years from now, I'd say 50% of all current knowledge workers have either transformed or kind of gotten, you know, into a different role. Maybe they're not lost. Like maybe we, we don't lose 50% of the workforce, but they're definitely going to transform. If we look at the convergence of all these technologies, we're looking at where we are with LLMs, generative AI, we look at OCR, which is like object recognition. We look at self-driving from Tesla. We look at Optimus from Tesla, and you know we haven't even talked about that. But all of these things are going to hit an inflection point somewhere in the near-term future where everything is going to get enabled at the same time. And this is something that's really hard for, for everyday folks to, to comprehend and what that means, right? We get a self-driving vehicle that's a car. It means that pretty much anything can get self-driving. And we get a self-driving vehicle, we get a, you know, a bipedal robot that can d do human tasks that it's going to be able to see and operate in the real world. It's just tied together. We have these LLMs that are like, it's a transformer. It predicts the next character. It can speak back to us. We don't really know how far the transformer will get us in terms of like the AI technology that's your derivative of the LLM. And the next thing after that, we don't know what that is either. But it's like we have intelligence on one hand, we have robotics and like kind of evolution of all of that. And on the other hand, and we have all the research fields that are currently like been on the development for the past 10, 15 years that hasn't really gotten the limelight yet. So we can assume that sometime within the next, I'd say five to 10 years, that the convergence of these things will, will happen. And I'm not saying we will get AGI, like that is not what I mean when I say convergence of these technologies, but I think the impact of, of these technologies will be so big that it's really hard to comprehend with what we know today how it would change the world that we live in. And it's up to us. Safe to say, then to summarize, is that we anticipate a lot of change. You anticipate a lot of change. The knowledge workers' work will change. We don't know exactly, but we know the convergence of everything that's happening will be a mass shift, essentially. That a lot of our work will be affected, including the knowledge worker, Whereas, you know, I think the Atlantic reported that no technology in modern memory has really caused mass job layoffs, as an example, for the educated worker. Not saying that, you know, manual laborers haven't changed because they have dramatically. People feared the computer and thought it was going to change, create a lot of job change. It did. It did create a lot of job change, but it was gradual over time. And a lot of people just shifted how they, how they work and what, what they work. 
And your perception is that, hey, this is going to happen again, but it's going to be maybe more targeted at the knowledge worker because this is a knowledge system that kind of pairs with you and, and partners with you. And information has never traveled as fast as it does today. So if we look at history for anything, it should be for, for signal and, and look at like what happened. And, you know, the industrial revolution took a lot of time, but information traveled slow. Industrial revolution was also physical, it was atoms, it took time. This time around, we're talking, we're, we're not really talking about atoms here. Like the safe jobs, if we talk about that, is like anything that's not a knowledge worker. And, and I think knowledge work is still safe because it's not a zero sum game. We're just going to do more. And if there are more value exchange, if there's more stuff happening, uh, more, more value being changed between people, the sum of the economy grows. So it's like, I wouldn't be too afraid of job loss, but I'm, I'm very afraid about job displacement or job transformation, where like people will have to figure out to adapt to this new world. Like you can't just sit around and be like, oh, this will never affect me. Like, I think the best response would be to like, kind of learn as much as you possibly can about these things so that you are well, like equipped to, to be in this new world where these things are going to live alongside us, like, or not live, but they're going to be alongside us. Um, yeah, that's, that's my take. <laughs> Might be hot. People being able to do more work, I think, is a key component here where someone can do the work of maybe two people uh, with an, th these intelligent systems kind of pairing with them, where they can do their work faster, right? And so if you can go faster, or if you can do the work of two people, then that changes the overall, it still changes the overall equation. It may not be that your job goes away, but it changes the equation for maybe the need uh, when you're pairing. But that, that goes for technology in general, if we look at the past history and what's happened a decade ago, it was predicted that AI would replace half of the jobs by 2023. And I think what's what's happened is that new jobs have been created, essentially, and also particularly in AI, I don't think it's moved as fast as anyone thought. In fact, I was talking to an owner of, of an AI business that was bought by one of the big tech companies. He said, hey, one of the dirty secrets of AI is people haven't really figured out how to monetize AI unless it's, par it's, unless it's paired with one of the big uh, tech companies in their in their cloud offering, you know, and it's like a service. But I think that's changing really quickly because the idea that you are paying a fee to use a service allows you to monetize any of these intelligent systems that are that are delivered to you through these large learning models. Elisha and Johnny, what are your thoughts on the future? How will generative AI change? How will jobs be affected? Uh, what perspectives do you have? Yeah, maybe I can talk about it from how, how is it going to change for software engineering space, right? Because generative AIs can also code, like you've seen GitHub Copilot, and there are a lot of discussion around like, well, do, do we stop coding now? Because uh, computers can code for us, right? Maybe the way I look at it is maybe how Back in the day, uh, I think many people who owned a car probably knew how to fix their own car. Today, I own a car. I know nothing about like how to fix a car. I just take it to the shop and just let the expert deal with it. And with the software engineering, it might become something like that where some of the knowledge work essentially disappear in certain segment where only the people who are really curious, who are really enthusiastic about uh, learning the fundamentals of the tech might still be there. Like I want to create my own website, my own technology, and I don't want to rely on the computer to just give me the answer, which I don't understand. I want to understand what's going on. So there may be a more gap between people who just need to use like 
I don't know, maybe Squarespace to build a site. They don't need to know anything about web development. They just want to enter data to get the result they want because that they're going for selling their product. That's all they care. They don't need to understand how to build the website from fundamental perspective. So there may be a gap between like the beginner space and the expert space, uh, just like how you may have done to some of the technologies we have. And another prediction I have is that it become much more fine-tuned. Maybe it's the episode of Black Mirror where it recreates, uh, you know, likeness of us, right? Like maybe my clone is possible in a decade where instead of hiring an assistant, someone would, uh, you hire myself to answer email from Jeff, right? And then I'll, I'll negotiate. You hire yourself? <laughs> Your LLM is like, take all my accounts yeah. and study all those yeah. accounts, essentially. Take all my email history. Yeah, but this is happening. This is happening right now. I mean, this I've seen right stuff okay. in the past few weeks. I've always wanted to clone myself. And I mean, if I could clone Elisha and Johnny, they're like such incredible uh, colleagues and, and smart workers. I mean, that would be amazing. So. Yeah. I'll, I'll hire myself to, I'll hire Johnny's clone. And to then you'll hire yourself. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My clone might be a little bit more available than I am and could, could answer <laughs> to get to quick answers. Of answer. But, but I think Linus is right. Like we're not, we're not too far from that. I mean, just in the last few days, my mind has been blown. I think Jeff, I might've shared something with you, but like the idea that I could just go to a chat system, right? And this will eventually be integrated to your device. Like we don't have to think about it as a separate system, but the idea of me saying, what was the last email I had with this client? And what was the document I had with that? And, you know, things like go and draft something based off the way I speak. Remind me tomorrow if I haven't answered. Like that is doable today. You can do that. And that, that was announced a couple of days ago, a few days ago. That's through ChatGPT plugins, specifically through Zapier. That's what one plugin enables. Now you start to tap that into like, hey, I'm going to go on this visit and I want you to talk to this team, prep a reservation, do this. Like in the next three to five years, smart assistants are going to be what I think we always wanted them to be, where instead of being like, dang it, it didn't understand me and you get mad at it, right? I think we're going to start to see that integrated a lot more, you know, I guess, like I said, to the vision that we always had. And these smart assistants are going to be extremely powerful and they're going to be just integrated very deeply into what we do and how we speak and personalize to help us. So personalized AI assistants are going to be huge in the next three to three to five years and probably even sooner. Like it could even happen in one year, but I just think for mass adoption, I think we're closer to that three, three or five range. Yeah, for sure. I, th I think one thing, to, if you look at Rewind, for example, sorry for just overtaking there, but Rewind.ai, I mean, it, they're working on stuff where anything that's been visible on your screen like is getting searchable and they're working together with like some other hackers to make like a AI assistant of that. And if you can clone yourself or if you can create an entity of yourself that knows everything about you, everything, everything more, more about you than yourself, essentially, why would you only have one? That's my, that's my like solid question. Like, why would you have one? I would have 10 or 20 or, or, or 50. There's no point in just having one. And it becomes really clear straight away that like, this is going to go wild pretty fast, pretty soon. Even if it's, it doesn't matter if it's three years out. It, the, what matters is it's going to happen. <laughs> that's, that's the most interesting thing of, of all of us. <laughs> it, like I said, technology has a life of its own and, and whether we want to whatever we do, it's going to keep, it's going to keep rolling forward. And I see, we've seen this in other kind of tech spaces. And I think most recently you mentioned smartphones and the internet, what we saw with voice AI, this is no exception. 
So one little ex experiment we did with Sensive. So Sensive is essentially like a smart journal slash mood tracking app that I started back in 2020 after losing my dad suddenly when he, he was just six years old. Uh, and I, I needed a, a space to kind of vent. And I, I went to see traditional psychologists and all that crap. It worked great, but I, I wanted an outlet for myself. And now a few years in, uh, and obviously we, we played a, a lot with like adding AI to that. Uh, and one thing that we, we've done benchtop wise is the ability to speak to my own journal. So I, I got around 580 journal entries, uh, in different lengths, and I can now query my own journal. It's like having a, a talking journal. It's like a part of me in there. And it's profound. Just that simple interaction with, with that data that's locked up in my journal, having the ability to query it, ask it, talk to it, it's a profound experience. And if this is just the prefaces of what, what's about to happen when this stuff gets personalized and, and everywhere, it's going to be very, very interesting what's going to come out of it, both good and bad, but, but mainly I think good. I'm a very optimistic, uh, I have a very optimistic view on this. So yeah, it's very exciting. And I think one thing that we maybe forgot to mention early on in this talk as well, is like one thing that is so beneficial for these tools is that it unlocks playfulness. Like for a long time, computers have been very dull and boring. And it's kind of like, you know, you give it instruction, it follows instructions. But this time around, it's more playful. It's like you're being a kid again and you're left your devices in your room playing with your toys or you're out in, you know, in the, in the sandpit playing around with your friends. And that, that's what it feels like when you're interacting with these systems, whether it's mid journey to create art or it's a chat GPT to, to query for, for knowledge or information. Just think that's worth noting. Humans are innately creative, and there's a reason why we all like Legos or drawing or sketching as a child until we get into the school system and teaches us to be a little bit less creative, a little bit more robotic. But innately, we are creative, and so these these tools can take our unstructured ideas or notes or half ideas, and and we can kind of co-create, right? And so I think it the strike the strike like what can we create is probably that moment where people are staying up all through the night you know going like whoa look what look what i created look what i'm creating look what i'm doing it's striking at that sort of our creative bones as human beings right and i think that that is profound and different like you said than the input output or just the reckon rec recommendation engines type thing that elisha that you referred to uh before elisha other thoughts from you on the on the future yeah, I think maybe last thing I would add is that this technology is still held by some big corporations and primarily in English speaking and American corporate companies. And the degree of quality is different for other languages and perhaps accessibility is also different. Uh, $20 per month on ChatGPT seems cheap enough to us, but not so cheap in other countries. Unless they are doing, I, I don't, I don't know if they're doing any price parity, but I think as OpenAI actually opens more of their, you know, knowledge in through their paper and companies, organization with the funding in another countries can replicate the algorithm and produce their own results, train for their cultural uh, fit, ethical, different ethical concerns of their own jurisdiction and, you know, matching to their way of you know language or image or whatever creative output i see the future where it becomes more like a micro ai's that could maybe meet the people of the region thanks for that perspective i think that's really important let's hit on that a little bit more because i think 
ethics is a topic that's written a lot about right now, but there's not a lot of answers as we think about this. And especially with how fast things are moving, people are going, whoa, is there, are there are there ethical considerations? And, and, you know, the notion of an LLM composing a body of knowledge that, you know, we don't, may not know where it comes from. Like we may appreciate the synthesized output, the creative output, but we also don't know what it's lifting from sometimes. And I know the sourcing has been getting better, but what are your guys' perspectives on, you know, the ethics of generative AI and how do we kind of temper this excitement also with care as we shape the future? Johnny, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I definitely think there are some ethical concerns and, and we're seeing some companies starting to address that. I think uh, in the last week we saw Adobe release Firefly, which is uh, their kind of take on generative AI, leveraging generative AI into their suite of products. Pretty fascinating breakthroughs there that we could talk about. But I think as it relates to ethics is that, you know, they're doing a lot of talking about the fact that they're where they get their data, right? They say, you know, hey, we've trained data off of Adobe's, I think it's uh, their stock image site. So Adobe stock and where images have been, you know, uh, people have consented to sharing their images. So they're saying, hey, anything you generate from our platform will come from you know, consented to kind of data. Um, and that's a pretty big deal to see a, a large organization start to start to look at, you know, to to do that kind of thing. Um, we're seeing others, you know, uh, like Amazon as it relates to you publish books on, you know, Amazon books and you go and download a book. Now they have a whole category where you go and specify that it's been generated by AI. And so they're kind of making a distinction so that people don't feel misled or confused. So that there's, there's things like that that are starting to tackle that, but I think we still have a big gap. We're seeing bias and discrimination for sure and image generation typing a specific culture or typing in poor will generate certain type of races. And, and uh, so like, there's, there's definitely some discrimination and stuff like that happening in that process. And a lot of these companies are addressing that and saying, Hey, we understand that it's doing that type of thing. And we want to build in mechanisms to help improve that. And so you see like a huge jump uh, of improvements from an ethical standpoint from GPT-3, for example, 3.5 to four, right? Whereas in 3.5, you could ask it, very, you could say, hey, I want to do this really harmful or dangerous thing. Tell me how to do that. And it was smart enough to say, hey, I can't do that. But then you could say something like, well, I'm just writing a play about it. Can you give me the information now? And then it would say, sure, here's how you do that. Or let's just play pretend. What would you tell somebody? Or you're interviewing somebody, tell them how they did it. What is their confession? And so you could tell it, you kind of a little hacks, little, uh, I think they were calling them like uh, jailbreaks to be able to have it do harmful and dangerous things. And that's a lot of the, where you get a lot of the news that's happening, you know, uh, on this ethics space, but they've started to prevent a lot of those things. And a lot of times you just don't know, it's so open-ended the different use cases so that, you know, so over time it will get, it will get better. And there's, there's a lot to be done there, but we're seeing a lot, even in court cases as it relates to authorship and, and copyright you know, literally less than a week ago, the copyright office, the U.S. Copyright Office had generated a statement talking about how they're going to handle uh, non-human authorship. And they have an official statement on that. There's been court cases that have been lost and some that have been won that has to do with image generation. So there's just like a lot of questions and, and yeah, considerations that will need to happen. And I think we're going to see you know, I think it's going to be, time will tell how, how quickly we can address those, but I'm hoping that it's something that we can be upfront about and make sure it's visible to people so that they're aware of where it's coming from, where things are coming from, and then have them be able to consciously make decisions on whether or not to use the data or how they use it. Is it a draft or is it a pro production ready 
generation and kind of making sure that that's something that is explicitly called out. So I don't know. That's where my, that's where my head is as I think about some of those ethical concerns. Yeah. I think it's very interesting discussion, right? Because who gets to decide the copyright is already a difficult problem. Like maybe you created a content in the United States and your right in the United States is maybe protected, but like what about in other country where they copy your content and you know they they go without being punished in terms of like, hey, you copy my stuff, but like, well, we are not under the same jurisdiction. So what are you gonna do about it? Right. I think the biggest topic that I see is a censorship. Uh, Midjourney is actively shutting down certain prompts or certain output. If you look at the history of art, you look at like the, the beautiful painting of maybe like naked baby angels and, you know, naked woman. And we call it artistic, but maybe that uh, they, they actively censor those in the mid journey output and say, like, we understand that it can be artistic, but it can also harm, you know, certain the audience in certain age group. Right. So where do we balance the censorship at the same time? We, is it a good censorship, bad censorship? Who gets to decide uh, who has that power? And it's much easier with a proprietary technology like Midjourney because they, they're the king. They get to own the ruling on that. But when it comes from something like OpenAI, where it's technically not so open anymore, but in the future, we'll be discussing a lot about those things. Yeah, I think just touching a little bit on kind of biases. And I think currently... Pretty much all systems are just amplifying our own human biases uh, a lot. Like Midjourney, for example, it feels like straight out of central casting. If you ask for cam- car mechanic, you'll get like a Hispanic looking, you know, like dude, uh, which is obviously wrong. Uh, if you ask for or a Swedish person, you will get like a blonde, blue eyed something, uh, which is wrong. There's obviously like all walks of life here. So I think it amplifies our own inability to be more versatile in, in, in our own biases. And this is a very difficult problem overall, because like, if you look from a societal level, like what, what's right here might not be right further down south or on the other side of the globe. So these systems will have to adapt and, and kind of learn better, be better. Uh, it's our job also to, to shepherd them to be better. Uh, it's obviously like a noble mission and it will take a lot of work and a lot of effort. But I think if, if, if at any time, we should, as, as, as humankind, mankind, we should focus on this stuff because we have the opportunity to do things better this time around. We have the opportunity to kind of remove unnecessary bias and remove racial slurs and remove these stuffs from these systems as we are designing them. It should be one of the most important things that we do and focus on. But, but it's a big task and it's a big undertaking. And I think another thing that's, we're touching on this, like where currently it's gated and, you know, it's run by these big companies, proprietary information. It takes a lot of compute to run many of these things, especially training and learning. Inference is a lot easier. But if, if we look at the moon landing, for example, you know, the, the computer that handled that was a calculator. So these things are destructive as they are. There's disruptive and destructive and who knows, five years from now, I, I might be able to take whatever was proprietary for Midjourney and, and use that then to create stuff that's harmful. So it's like, I don't know how far we can push this cat and mouse game where, you know, some people are going to work for the good of it. Some people are just going to try to like get to the to root and, and use kind of the, the, the low code of it and, and just use it in any way they want, harmful or not. So I think like from an ethics standpoint, we, people, the companies and people that are working with this should be, should do their A game. We should not 
cut corners, right? We've learned from social media. We learned how dangerous these things can be when left uncontrolled or, or, or done just in the hype. Uh, all good intentions, by the way, like we've had good intentions with everything, but this time around, maybe it's more important than ever to be cautious and to play kind of safe. And I think OpenAI is doing a great job at putting like, you know, support wheels and like doing censorship and doing all this stuff that they are doing and Midjourney as well. Like they spoke about this openly during the last office hours. They have a lot of team members that are looking through content and, and flagging content, but this is not scalable. Like if we're going to get 5 billion people, 6 billion people onto these systems, we're not going to have human curators forever doing these things. So we're going to have to figure out a way to, to do better. Sounds like, you know, kind of trying to collectively pull from, from all three of you, you know, this notion of a guide that smaller subsets, even though it's not scalable, uh, think, thinking about how you, how we guide them, given what we've learned about where our biases might exist is, is important. Transparency is is important awareness is important education so we understand what we're getting is important it sounds like all of these things are important and and we know this space is moving so fast i i love this imperative of like it's more important than ever to be careful with this and we know it's to continue to kind of do good with this and make this the, the best that it can be given that we've like you've said we've learned from a lot of other technology in the past and how how it can affect us um I think my hope is that, you know, if you talk to a lot of deep creators around the future of technology, a lot of them are thinking like, how can technology help us be more human? And, and yet it seems like technology and, and be our best selves, you know, as, 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 as a race, as sort of human, you, you know, with the skills and capabilities and talents we have. It, it, even people that are deep into robotics are thinking the same thing. It's not, it's like, how do we take away the dull, dirty, dangerous side of, of human work, you know, the mundane work. And here we have, we're in generative AI and it's like, okay, we're creators as human beings. And so like, how do we help us be our, our best selves? I think there's something here with, with generative AI where it allows us to do that in a, in a broader way, but we still have the, 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 the perils and the pros of, of this is no different. And yet we've kind of learned our lessons. It'd be, I would hope that we can continue to shape it. And, and, and it's people like us that can talk about it and, and be involved, you know, in, in those ethical considerations, write about it yeah. and do, do the best we can. I, I want to ask another question because technology moves so fast. This is no exception. Like, what would we say to people that are scared? Because there's a lot of people that, you know, you talk about, you know, people were scared of computers back in the day, like, and what it was going to, and it changed where it changed us, but mostly for the better. What would we say to people that are scared of generative AI? Yeah, I'm dealing with this a lot because of my given optimism. I I, I come at this, so, so my mission is, is simple. I, I see a need for educating people en masse fast because the people that knows these softwares, let's, let's put it this way, the people that has access to these tools that have learned to use these tools, they're not running ahead of the people that are not using these tools at like a one X speed, they are running away from, from the other cohort at a 10 X or a 20 X speed. And I think the problem that we're looking at is like, if the, if, if the time divide between the people that are getting into these tools and the people that are not, if that time divide gets too long or too, like too, too dragged out, we're going to see larger societal issues than if we can get as many people as possible, even though it's painful, even though it's scary, if we can get as many people as possible onto the train 
uh, at the same time and just have, you know, continuous trains coming into the station, filling up with people, we're going to win. So I think the approach people should have, if they're feeling afraid, they should try to take on the lens of, of a kid in the playground. Don't look at these systems or tools as adversaries or like enemies. They, they should look at them as, uh, as friends, as colleagues, as, as something that could augment their skills, something that is playful. They shouldn't be afraid of doing wrong. I think basically all this stuff they should have done with a computer early on applies here as well. The problem this time around is again, speed, breakneck speed. The fact that 5 billion people are on the internet, I, I couldn't stress this more, right? We, we need to make sure that this is something that benefits all, because if people are left behind this time around, it's going to be really hard for them to catch up. I think we're seeing in the fringes now, the people are getting hurt the most are people that are in university, like starting their education early on, and they're afraid because, you know, here is GPT-4 scoring 90 percentile on the bar exam, and I'm going to be a lawyer. You know, I got five years in front of me before I even get out of school. And then you have the person that's been 30 years or 35 years in the industry, whatever industry it might be, and, and it has like coworkers that are 10, 15 years younger running eights around them because they have access to these new tools and they just spit out content. So we need to be cautiously optimistic and we need to have a playful mindset. I think that's my perspective on, on how you should approach this technology to be part of it. Yeah, yeah. Johnny and I are also optimistic as people, you know, pushing for emerging tech. And we, we run into these questions as well, uh, even within our company. And I think the way I probably try to encourage people to think is it is going to probably let you do more of the things that maybe you wanted to do more of. Uh, you know, famous saying with all the SaaS application telling you, hey, you can focus on what you really love to focus on instead of worrying about the mundane work, right? Like we, you know, we like to use the mint.com or Expensify to just categorize our expense and just use software to send our tax to, you know, file tax or send it to tax accountant instead of having a paper of transactions that we have to record and then send it through manual papers. Maybe it helps, like, you know, even though it might replace some of your work, it might replace it in a good way. Maybe having an open-minded way to what else can I do with the available time now that I have might be uh, one of the approach. Johnny, what do you think? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I think those are all things that I think impact. I think as we think about the type of work we take on now and how it might, like I said, help us go from zero to one. In some of these in some of these areas, it, yeah, it becomes really impactful really quickly, and you reduce the iterative cycles that you kind of go through. But I think I think where my my thinking goes as it relates to addressing people that are scared of generative or they're like, "Whoa, this is rolling fast." I mean, I, I definitely, uh, I do hear we do hear that a lot um, from lots of different people. Even just mentioning we the product the, the platform that we build with Brancher.ai, I've had some very drastic negative responses to like participating in that movement. I think I'd invite people to, I think it's important to hear those concerns. So I, I would say to those that are that are scared about where kind of where it's going, I think it's important to lend an ear to to those people that have concerns and actively listen and, and then also see what we can do to apply to, because a lot of that feedback is actually pretty important, I think, and that, that, that might help the way we build our products. It's kind of, it's part of any product that we build today coming from that design background. It's like, it's important to have that user feedback in the process. There's a lot of, I, I think other things I'd add is uh, just the fact that there's a lot of education that 
that people need to make, you know, need to do to see how it can help them. So just providing very accurate and accessible, relevant information. I think things we can do as well as, uh, you know, share the success stories. I think there's a lot in the news that focus on the negative part of it. And I think uh, we could be advocates for, you know, uh, sharing success stories, highlight positive examples of these real world applications and, and how it's helping in, in healthcare or education. And, and just being, if you're seeing those things happen, sharing that with the world, maybe a couple more that, that come to mind. I know Linus, Linus mentioned one about just that like human AI collaboration. I think that there's that we could, you know, really reinforce the idea that AI is meant to complement human skills and expertise rather than replacing them and explaining, you know, that human AI collaboration can really lead to effective problem solving and it really can pr increase the productivity. So yeah, I mean, there's maybe the last one is just like addressing addressing the ethic con ethical concerns and being really transparent and addressing those potential, the potential for misuse, acknowledging like any technology, it can be misused. Same same thing happened with the internet in 95. Just, you know, it could be misused and, and here are some steps that can be taken to prevent that malicious use or to build security measures or collaborate with policymakers, involve the public. You know, there's a lot I think that we could start to tackle to, to help reduce that fear. I think people become less scared uh, when they're able to understand it better as well. I think our minds fill in the gap sometimes. That's so important, Johnny, like the people are less scared when they understand. And I think most people are afraid now because they don't understand. That's it. I think that that's, that's the most, yeah, that's it. If we can get more people to understand, let's, that's, let's that's, worry. That's a, a, a great um, plug for this podcast episode. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think whether we look at the calculator, the computer, companies like Uber, these things roll forward and pe and then people people are on the sidelines you know historically going they are scared and they and like to your point they they maybe don't understand but it's going to come it's it's going to come and so i think this call to like play with it dive in understand it test it seems to be kind of a great takeaway for those that want to learn more i want to finish with just just this last question and i appreciate all the depth of insight so far where would you send uh, folks to learn more. I know there's an element of like testing things, but like, what would be some things you you would say? Now, Linus, I'm assuming your your uh, newsletter is one place people can go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shame, shameless plug. No, but like, I mean, I do what I can. Like, I'm on Twitter, right, Linus Eckenstein, and I, I do write my my newsletter as well. Where where is education is like primary what I focus on. But I would encourage like if you're interested, you, you know, go on YouTube, search find some videos of people explaining it thoroughly and slowly, go to the tools themselves, like go, go use the free version of ChatGPT if you haven't tried it out uh, and, you know, just go play with it. I think like anything, like knowledge seeking is, uh, you know, the, the forefront. And it, actually one of the funniest use cases for, for kind of learning with these tools is like to go to ChatGPT and ask it to teach you something about something that you don't know about and ask it questions about what should I focus on if I want to learn X? And you'd be surprised because like, it's like having a conversation with a tutor, for example. And yeah, you, you might be the aha moment that you're looking for. So actually the best place to go to learn about these things is to go to the tools themselves <laughs> and ask them, what do I need to know about how, you know, <laughs> you know, what do I need to know to know, to learn, to learn how to use GPT, uh, chat GPT, <laughs> meta. Johnny or Elisha, any, any other thoughts on favorite places where you guys have been learning kind of staying, staying abreast of what's happening? I think the echoing the Linus uh, mentioning about using the tool to learn, I think we've seen success. 
I have seen witness some success of people turning around their understanding of the tool just by actually using it. Even the knowledge workers where they're afraid they might replace them, um, including the artists, um, all of my people that I personally know, after they use the tool, they learn quickly that this can be used to their advantage. Uh, like I have a artist friend who now use uh, generative AI to quickly uh, come up with the concept art instead of spending hours drawing something and send to the boss. Hey, what do you think about this? And boss says, like, oh, I don't like it. Come back in, you know, next day, and, you know, after spending eight more hours. Well, instead, you know, they can just generate hundreds of image show to their boss and like, oh, yeah, we like this one. Okay, now, now we are past the you know, uncertain, ambiguous, what is my boss going to like it to like, okay, yeah, we're going with this concept. Like now let's put the hundred percent custom effort into it. So I think people will find it really quick that once you use a tool, you'll find ways to magnify your uh, work and do more of what you really want to do. Johnny? Mm. Yeah, I really like both of your suggestions. I don't know how much I can add to those, but I would say like for me, the way I I try to educate myself is I like to subscribe to a lot of newsletters like Linus's or like others. When we participated in a hackathon, it was with Ben's Bytes. And there's a few other, there's a few other big, fast growing newsletters. And their their full intent is to educate or to just let you know what's coming out. So instead of me going and digging through Reddit and through Twitter and through a lot of these, they'll bring you a, a curated list of apps that might be powered by AI or new advancements. And I'll just keep myself up to date by doing that. So I think just a combination of doing your own research, following people that are doing the work to help out with the education like Linus and others, and then um, newsletters, I think would be the three recommendations I'd give. Thanks for the depth of insight. Let me know when you guys each clone yourself your own LLM so I can chat more often and, and get more help. But uh, I'm looking forward to the future and I appreciated your guys' perspective on how, on how we shape it and how we can kind of uh, make the most of our experiences as humans kind of living in it and in and really a fast paced time right now that, that everyone really needs to understand because it's going to impact their future. But I appreciated you guys being on today and look forward to continue to learn from you. Thank you so much. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. The Future of Podcast is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for the future of an Apple podcast, Spotify, Google podcast, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, thank you for listening.